Hi, I'm Sunny Dean. And I'm Scott Drakeford. And this is the Publishing Rodeo Podcast. In 2022, we both launched debut novels in the same genre with the same publisher in the same year. But despite having very similar starts, our books, and subsequently each of our careers, went in very different directions. That pattern repeats itself throughout the industry over and over. Why do some books succeed while others seem to be dead on arrival? In this podcast, we aim to answer those questions and many more, along with how to build and maintain an author career. Everyone signing a contract deserves to know what they're really signing up for. In an industry that loves its secrets, we'll be sharing real details from real people. We'll cover the gamut of life as a big five published author, from agents to publishing contracts, finances, and more. Welcome to the Publishing Radio podcast, where we every week we find new ways to make Scott Drakeford cry. And uh, this week we have with us <laughs> Nick Binge, the author of Ascension. And I first encountered Nick when I saw Harper shilling copies of his book, his ARC advanced reader copies, on Twitter. And the description intrigued me a lot, so much that I posted and, and asked very nicely if they would like to have one of my firstborn children in exchange for an ARC. Um, at that point, Vicky Leach, who, who's Nick's editor and also my UK editor, commented and said there's no need for for firstborn children, um, just like some of their blood or something would be sufficient. Anyway, I got the Ark of Ascension and, and read it and was really, really happy to, to give an endorsement for it. But we're, we're going to talk to Nick today about all the fun things involving film rights and foreign translations and big sales and stuff like that, because you might think it won't happen to you, but... It could do, and it does happen to someone. And also, to be honest, there's so little information about that side of publishing. Like when I was looking into it, there, as scant as information was, there's still more information about what it's like to be midlist than what it is like to navigate film deals and translation rights and all that jazz. So, yeah, feel free to introduce yourself, Nick, uh, even more than we already have. Hi, I'm, I'm Nick. I uh, I just go on record and say I still never got any of that blood, Sunny. So. Uh... You know, I'll be keeping an eye out for that <laughs> at some point. And yeah, I, I think Sunny's basically covered everything. I'm I'm author of Ascension, uh, which I've been really fortunate and really lucky that that in certainly in the in the publishing terms has seen a lot of success in a lot of different areas. But it's it's I think it's easy to see, and you I think you talked about this a bit before in the podcast. But it's easy to see these kind of successes from an external perspective and think that people have just like immediately hit big and and people don't really talk about the the years that go in beforehand or kind of the pitfalls and the things that are going on so yeah i was i was writing for years before before any of this happened but it has happened i'm i'm big fan of the podcast and keen to just kind of shine a light a little bit on kind of some of the some of the nitty-gritty some of the contractual stuff that's involved as well with film rights some of the kind of terms and conditions and what they mean because when i was going through it i was like literally every time i got sent something i was having to contact my agent or someone to be like i don't know what any of these words mean i don't know what these terms mean i don't know what back end means i don't know what purchase price means i I, like i I know nothing and it would have been useful i think going in to to have a little bit more of that information absolutely what you wrote some books before ascension is that right just to give some context for it yeah i mean yeah, I'll do. I can do a very, very quick kind of. Um, yeah, go for it. Where, where what, what happened? I mean, I, I started writing uh, a while back, and I wrote a couple of novels that 
died on query after you know the classic query trenches of submitting to like a hundred different agents and all of them saying some variation of you know it's not you know right for the market or you know I didn't fall in love with it or something like that and just kind of plugged plugged along and keep writing I mean I look back at them I look back at the first novel I wrote which I was really proud of at the time and now I'm like yeah, it was terrible I, I know why no agents picked that up like it was it's a really really derivative nonsense you know I kept writing and it it felt like I was getting better, which was good. And so after, after a couple of books that died in the query trenches, I wrote a book called Professor Everywhere, which was a little, it was allowing myself to, I suppose, be a little bit more experimental, a little bit more niche and weird and kind of playing around with stuff and ended up, because I was kind of frustrated with the whole querying process, submitting that to a, a prize. Uh, it was like a Southeast Asian literary prize thing for, for unpublished work. And they really liked it. They shortlisted it, and then they said that they wanted to publish it. And I was like, "Yeah, this is it. I'm going to be a published author." And I was, but they were a very, very small press. And I think, looking back on it now, there's not a huge amount of difference between what they did and what I could have effectively done self-pub if I had a bit more information and I knew that guy. Except for the fact that like they made me sign over all my rights which I didn't really understand or know anything about at the time but that's you know that's part of the game so yeah that that was fine that that and I was excited to to have a book and then I wrote Ascension and that's obviously where things hit it big and I think the moment that I knew that I had something on my hands here was when I came back like as I said I've been in the query train just before I knew how it went it's been months and years waiting for rejections from people the occasional full going out but so I wasn't super hopeful, but I, I moved back to the UK. I lived in Hong Kong at the time, and I moved back to the UK and and uh, started querying Ascension. And to cut a long story short, in a month, I had seven offers from agents. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this is different. This is, this is not the experience I went through last time. That was a bit crazy. One of the reasons I went with the agent that I went with at the time, and I think this is something to think about for those of you who are kind of out there, in those trenches and, and looking for agents and anyone that has to make various decisions is not just because the agent was great, but because they were part of a, a big and very well-established and very well-connected agency, which I think has genuinely made a very, very large difference to certain things that have happened down the line. So they had their own quite large translation tra- rights team. And this is, this is C&W, who are my agency in London, but they're, um, so they're, they're a big agency in their own right, and they've got loads of huge authors and they're fantastic, but they're also owned by Curtis Brown, who are huge. So they've got all those connections there. And then they were also owned at the time by just umbrellas of organizations underneath one another. They were owned by um, Original Talent Group, who were then bought later on by UTA. So technically, they're owned by UTA now. And what that means is that, yes, I have my agent, and yes, I have the resources at CNW, but I also have the resources of Curtis Brown, and I also when necessary, have the resources of UTA, which obviously makes a fundamental difference. It meant that I had a dedicated translation rights team as part of the agency who are working for me. It meant that Curtis Brown has dedicated book-to-film agents, like their entire job is taking these books and pitching them to film people and stuff like that. And and it meant that they had connections with kind of people all over the world. And I think being at a smaller agency, I think the book still would have done well because obviously there was something marketable about it that people liked but i don't know if it would have done as well without having those kind of the, those connections and so i think that's um that's something to be really aware of 
in agencies and the way that they kind of interrelate and play with one another. Uh, and if you are going with an agent thinking about the kind of those that I didn't realize beforehand, the idea that agencies are sometimes owned by larger agencies that are also owned by larger agencies and they all have those kind of integral connections between them in the publishing industry. So yeah, that was that. And then Ascension went on sub about seven or eight months later. We did a couple of edit passes with my agent. We were kind of ready to go. We went on sub in the UK first. My agent was thinking we were going to go sub in the UK first, hopefully build some buzz and then go sub on the US because he was very adamant that we were going to split rights and he was only going to offer UK and Commonwealth rights to, to, to UK publishers, which we did. That went to auction eventually between five publishers in the UK. And I can talk about how auctions work in a little bit as well. Um, so it ended up going to auction in the UK, it ended up selling to eight countries in translation. So eight foreign deals um, of various countries in translation at different times during that period. And actually, I don't know if I can talk about it too much, but I literally just got an offer from a ninth today. Uh, so, <laughs> so that was did exciting. You talk, did you talk to him about yes. strategy before going out or did he just kind of say this is how it's going to be or did you know do you know strategy he, then he 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 told me what his strategy okay. was <laughs> and i went okay uh, <laughs> because i really didn't know very much about the industry at the time so i didn't really feel like i was in a position where i could argue with him or wanted to argue with him and, you know i trusted him okay was so so yeah he, Sorry, go on to it. Was that, you know, those strategy sessions or, or whatever you want to call it, was that part of your selection process with those seven agents that you had uh, offered to you? How did you navigate that? I, we, I definitely did ask in kind of relatively vague terms, I suppose, about strategy. I, I asked, you know, the things like who are you planning on submitting it to and, and, and why, and, and different agents told me different things. But one of the things that did sway me to Alex was he, he told me when he was calling me on the call about the various resources that CNW have, you know, the book to film agents, the translation right team, all of that kind of stuff, and how we would lean onto that to find, yeah, I, I remember him specifically mentioning at the time, mm. the way that it's, a, it's part of his strategy and, and CNW's strategy to, to find diverse income streams for authors that aren't mm. just the book deal and that, that you find you find your income streams in various ways and that that was attractive to me obviously and he was the only one that really actively talked about that and kind of pitched that to me and so and that's very much what what he's managed to do for me or we've done together since so yeah that that was great and then while it was all happening and this was the bit that was i mean it was also real at the time right I, i'd gone from like nothing to like this five publisher <laughs> auction and these translation rights and was kind of losing my mind a little bit. Um, when it happens, it happens. And I remember, suddenly. yeah, it's, um, when, when it happens, it happens quickly. That's definitely <coughs> true. Um, and I think I was, I remember really clearly I was, um, mm. I was in bed. It was like, it was like nine or 10 PM. I was like reading a book, ready to go to sleep. And I get a text from Alex that just says, um, remind me the age of your protagonist again. And I was like, weird text to get at 10 p.m. Uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, but I I texted him back and you know he was around mid 40s or whatever um, and uh, and he was like okay um, and I remember it really specifically people are asking because they're thinking about who might play him uh, in a movie and I was just like 
what 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 do you mean people like, who are these people like are you chatting about the office like are you like what's going on here so i kind of didn't sleep that night basically yeah. uh <laughs> and then and then a couple of days later uh basically their book to film agent luke um at curtis brown at the time had been getting a lot of interest and and an offer came in uh from from a big production company that i'm not actually allowed to go into the, the exact details quite yet uh of the names and everything like that but but it was great it was fantastic and he said there was a lot of excitement about it and part of that is there is very much uh as as i call it on the, on the discord group when we talk about it there is very much a phenomenon in the publishing and entertainment world called the hype train yes. and when that hype train starts going it really starts going and it picks up steam and there are, what i discovered was there were so many individuals with me within the industry uh particularly book scouts and film scouts whose entire job is to get tickets for the hype train. Like that, that's their job. Mm -hmm. That's what they do. They, mm -hmm. they put their ear to the ground and they listen for when the big books are, uh, uh, are getting talked hype about. Hype builds hype. So when, for example, yeah, hype builds hype. When, for example, a, a book's going to a five publisher auction or something like that. And then they take that and they run to another publisher or another, um, or a production company or something like that and be like, here's this book, you need to, you need to get in on this. Uh, and the more that builds up, the more that builds up. And so that was, that, that's kind of part of what was happening at the time. And it's why it all kind of snowballed, I think, to some degree. So yeah, and we ended up with, we ended up with two offers from two different production companies um, that we had to decide between. So there were auction, there was kind of auction scenario there, auction scenario in the UK, we had an auction in France, I think as well. And then we sold the rights to Riverhead in the US about a month later. And that was, again, that was an interesting strategy because his idea was we pitch it early, we build buzz so that when we go to the US, people already know about it and they're excited about it. And that worked kind of perfectly, it seems. That's a weird one. I don't, I don't think- that's, Sorry, that's, I was just gonna say, that's a weird one. My only experience that's the other way around because my agency is American. So the fact that I'm here, yeah. you know, we pitched the States first and then the UK was kind of like the afterthought, which was a bit weird to me because for a book set in the UK, that was my target market. But I was gonna ask as well, if, if you feel able to answer, if not, we'll cut the question, but um, yeah, I was gonna ask as well, whether the percentages are the same when you do that way around, because typically if you sell the deal in the States, the UK side is like 12 to 15% of the original American deal. I don't know if that scales the other way if you sell UK side first, because is the US a bigger market for you still, basically? The US is still a yeah. larger market and the, and it doesn't, um, I remember you talking about, and I'm happy to talk about my deal sizes and stuff like that, that's fine. I remember you talking about mm -hmm. the, the difference between your UK and your US deal my us deal was larger but not to the nowhere near to the same scale and i think the difference was my uk deal went to auction and my us deal did not and so there was nothing to specifically push up the us deal in the yeah. same way so my uk deal ended up being twenty five thousand pounds for one book uh standalone book but then my us was own was i say only but like in terms of kind of uh percentages mm. and things like that the us was forty thousand mm. dollars for the book as well. So it was higher, but not, you know, 10 times higher. And I think the auction scenario played into that. I think I probably, I would have got a lower UK deal if that hadn't been the case. I don't know, it's complicated, I guess, but we didn't have the leverage to kind of push, push the US deal up. You've done really uh, well out of it with all of this so far, so. <laughs> I mean, yeah, 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 no, I mean, by no yeah. means is it, is it was I disappointed. I was, I was absolutely thrilled. It was amazing. So yeah, that was happening. And, and the, so the auction in the UK, 
if people don't know how your auctions work, I, if there's a very variety of different ways that they can work. Um, and I think that runs slightly different in the UK to how they are in the US. Uh, US, there's usually a little bit more of a kind of blind bid scenario going on. They try and kind of play, obviously play publishers up against each other and try and get the, the highest deal possible. The UK does a similar kind of thing, but I think they tend to be a little bit more transparent. So my auction was done in a couple of rounds where basically uh, Alex said, okay, everybody table a bid, right? And they all did. And then Alex then said what the, told yeah. all the publishers, okay, this is what the highest bid is. Yeah right? And this is the money that, that that's currently the highest. Now we're going to do a second round. Can everybody table a second bid? And what I found really interesting actually was some people tabled a second bid that was actually quite a bit lower than what the highest bid was the first time round. And I think that's maybe because they didn't have, you know, they didn't have the approval to offer more money or it just wasn't, wasn't there for them, but they still wanted to bid anyway, because it's not always about the money, right? And, you know, there are a variety of other things. And actually what swung it for me with Harper Voyager, even though they did at the same time end up being the highest bid, what swung it for me really was the, the marketing plan and marketing deck that they sent. Same. Uh, it's so they, good. They are very good. They yeah. are so good at marketing. Mm -hmm. I, like every time I discuss Harper Voyager with friends on the UK side, it's like they, I really think they are so smart and savvy to, it was just between Titan who couldn't compete and between Harper. Um, but yeah. it's same as yours. Titan was like, we're going to offer this amount of money that we know is below the Harper one, but they were trying anyway, because they might as well. No, the same thing happened. We had an offer from Titan yeah. and they, they offered again and Rebellion as well offered, but it wasn't as high as, as the big five yeah. could do. And then we had Hachette. Oh, it was a, it was wildfire. Uh, so it was headline imprint that were kind of competing with Harper really interesting thing they actually really pissed Alex off by pulling out of the auction in the second round so bid bid quite a high offer and then the second round they turned around and they were like mm, actually we're rescinding our offer because we've decided that I don't know we don't have enough in-house support and we don't want it anymore even though they actually gave an offer the okay. first time which was odd take it personally that's my suggestion <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely absolutely i've we've printed out the the uh editor who made the offer and uh, throw darts at her face on the wall excuse <laughs> me anyway that's how the auction went we we made 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 the decision i mean we had a, a couple of calls with the two kind of top competing editors uh to chat to them as well about vision and stuff like that and then then, then we made the call to go with harper voyager and then interest interestingly with the film stuff in terms of auction as it were it wasn't really an auction in the same that 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 industry is far more opaque if any industry can be than the publishing industry as i've discovered the the, the kind of the hollywood film industry is even more so yeah. and basically it's like the wild west out there and people do whatever they want so my book to film agent didn't he's all I, I believe all he said to the production companies that were bidding were you're in a competitive environment he didn't say how many other people were bidding. He didn't say what their bids were. He didn't say, he was just like, he was just like, be aware you're in a competitive environment. <laughs> just to like push them up, which I mean, worked in the end. So that happened and that was great. And then when the film details came through, that was when I learned, of, I think a whole bunch of new terminology that might be interesting to, interesting to anyone who ends up getting an option or offered an option or has interest uh, from somebody. I, I think. Oh, I'll, can I start at a basic first yeah. and say, just sorry for people who are listening, yeah. uh, and I'll clarify this to you. So, when it comes time to to talking film sales, you're selling not the film, the rights to the film, but just the option. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So and what the, the, the it's essentially kind of like a deposit to some degree where they pay you a certain amount of money for the rights to make that film for a certain period of time. So usually 18 months, sometimes 24, sometimes 12. 18 months is common where they'll pay you a certain amount of money. And in that 18 months, they have that time to make the film. At the end of that 18 months, usually... If they haven't made it, they have two options. Either they say, actually, we're not making this. We've decided against it. In which case, all the rights come back to you and you can shop it again if you want to or sell it to somebody else if anybody else is interested. Or they can re-up re that option fee. So they pay the option fee again for a, for a further 18 months. They're like, well, we still want to make this, but it's going to take us a little bit more time. We're going we're gonna to pay you another option. And so that's the initial, initial kind of amount and then when the film or TV show actually gets made, they then pay you the full amount, which is called the purchase okay. price for the rights, which is usually significantly higher. But what's interesting is and anybody can buy an option to a film, right? So often it's production companies, but sometimes it's individuals. So it might be an individual screenwriter who is like, oh my God, I love this. I want to try and adapt it and, and try and sell it myself to a studio. It might be a director who's passionate about it. It might, sometimes it's even actors. And that happens sometimes when they get really excited about books, but often, often it's production companies. Did, One thing- Oh, sorry, I, I was gonna ask a question, sorry, go which is did your, either your film agent or Alex ever talk to you about whether any of those particular groups made a film more likely? Because an, an option is usually the point at which most books stay and the, the film doesn't ever appear, which is fine, it's free money. Yeah. But I just wondered if the, any of them ever said like, whether a production team buying those rights versus, say, a random screenwriter made it more or less likely for it to ever actually happen. I think a, produc a production company is, is going to make it more likely because they've got a whole team working behind them, right? And so they, they'll have more experience doing that than, than an individual. I suppose that depends who the individual is. You know what I mean? If, like, I don't know, Leonardo DiCaprio decides that he wants to buy the option to your film, you know, there's probably more likely than, like, a random screenwriter in L.A., so a production company and kind of the people who, let's say they buy the option, uh, they're going to start to put together people like the director, the screenwriter, they might start to do some casting and things like that. And then what they do is they then take this package and they bring it to a distribution studio. And so the studios are the people that provide them money. They're where the, the real budget for the film comes from. Uh, the, the, so when you see films that have budgets of like, you know, 50 million or stuff like that, that's, that's studio money, not production company money. They take it to studios and hopefully get the studios to go, yeah, this looks great. We're going to fund this and we're going to distribute it and we're going to get it in cinemas and we're going to do yeah. all of that kind of stuff that, that, um, that gets done. And studios are then split into kind of that. So there are some very small studios and then there are what are called the major studios. So the majors are, um, there's, it's kind of like the big five of publishing. There's the, there's the five major studios. It's um, Universal, Paramount, Disney, Warner Brothers, and Columbia, which is which is also Sony. Those are the five kind of majors. Though I think that these days as well, the really big streaming services are being considered majors as well. So Netflix, Apple TV, Amazon, stuff like that, they're being considered major studios too. And then you get what are called the mini majors, uh, which are things like Lionsgate, A24, stuff like that, like slightly larger, slightly, slightly smaller studios that, that, that still have clout, but don't have maybe quite the same budget as like 
Disney does or like um, Paramount does. And what's interesting, the reason this was important contractually is, and, and if, you're, if you're kind of in that position where you're looking at doing an option deal with a production company, is there's various ways that money can come to you through that contract. The first is obviously the option. The, the, the other obvious one is the purchase price. But sometimes, and if it isn't in there, and if you're in a position where you're negotiating this, you might want to talk to your agent about getting it in there, is what's called a studio setup fee. So it's basically when the production company goes to the studio and set, it's called setting it up. Basically, the studio agrees to fund them. You can get in your contract a little clause that says that you get a payout because the studio has just funded them a ton of money, right? So with a major you might you might you might get an extra payout for a major or a slightly smaller payout for a mini major but it's contractually written in that when it so even if the film doesn't get made just the act of setting it up with a studio is another way for you to earn money and then they have to so pay you. can can i ask real quick are are all of these that you're mentioning so you've mentioned the purchase price and now potentially a studio setup fee are those all stipulated in the option that's bought or are those all yes yeah they're there so when you get the option contract there's very very clear language about when money comes to you and and all of that sort of, sort of thing all the way to the film getting made and beyond right so the other thing that's usually in a contract is is what's called back end which is basically a percentage of the profits from the film so it's usually about 2.5 percent or two percent of profits from the film if the film gets made what i was told and i believe from talking to other people that this rings mainly true yeah is that you will never see this money and don't count on it because even if the film gets made yeah. and even if it does extremely well because Hollywood and film and TV producers in general have their accountants are very, very, very good at making it so that films don't make a profit. They, they're, so they, they just yeah, won't for, make, like for classically, for example, Star Wars never made a profit, yeah. even though it did hugely, wonderfully well. I mean, is there is there any potential there? Probably not from a, a, the standpoint of somebody signing an option on, you know, a, a, a book. But I, I have read that people who maybe have a little more leverage have gone after gross percentages rather than net for that very reason, so that they're not subject to funny accounting methods. The, there's, there is probably some scope to, to, to make those kind of things. I, I think as with all contracts there's probably scope for just about everything right if you can if you have the leverage to to argue it um but i would suspect that that many many production companies would just say no to you (laughs) Uh, uh, but like you know worth asking always worth asking the worst people can say is no i've got two questions i can throw you away if that's all right Um, one is i wondered if alex ever discussed shopping agreements with you and if if so you could i don't know maybe explain that to, to listeners if not don't worry about it and i guess the other question is whether there's a way for authors to look at the production companies that have offered options and evaluate them because obviously some of them are going to be like you know the the film equivalent of a micro press which might be okay but definitely not asking out of any kind of personal interest i think um the first the first question i don't know the answer to because i'm not sure i know what a shopping agreement is or maybe it, i have it under a different term what 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 are you thinking oh just a, a friend of mine recently accepted one and i think it was something along the lines of essentially they get less money for their option so that the the i think that was when a particular person like a director was interested right. in the film option and so they the idea is they offer less money so they can then go out and possibly have a better chance of like spending that budget towards acquiring a team essentially okay um, 
Uh, there were ups and downs to it, but yeah. I yeah, I would be. Uh, we 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 didn't discuss that because fortunately we weren't in that yeah. position. That the sound of that immediately set off like alarm bells in my head. Like that that, that felt like red flags to me. Um, it it would too. <laughs> although in this case, I will say that that yeah. director, right? It was a friend of ours that had a basically the the person who directed approached her right personally <laughs> so, and and so but that they were basically offering like a regular option or a shopping agreement and, and they talked it through and it, it would just be easier to ask someone who's gone through a shopping agreement maybe because it doesn't yeah. apply to you at all <laughs> yeah it's not something i went to so yeah no uh, don't worry <laughs> there's so many options <laughs> there's so many different types and that's the thing it's so complex um yeah for the second though um i think it's it's it is difficult i think you just have to try and look at what they've done uh look look on imdb look at what they've made yeah. um look at kind of who's been involved see if they've done any adaptations in the past um mm. i was i was fortunate enough that the the production company that we went with is very established yeah, like to the point okay. where like you go on their imdb and you recognize all of their films um yeah. so that i i never had any questions there i was like oh my god i'm this is these are important people i'm uh, making but, a list of all these but i think yeah in the same way with small presses just google as extensively as possible <laughs> yeah i recognize some of the films they've made but they are not in the genre that is my book yeah that's the interesting thing about <laughs> production companies sometimes is they they're not really okay. they don't work like publishers in the way that they they, that they have like a niche or a genre because the when they set when they kind of sell them to studios they can sell them around to other people okay. you know what i mean i think i think it'd be yeah it'd be more okay. akin to an agent that's got representing various genres than than like a publisher if that makes sense no that's really helpful actually thank you um and i think so production companies do do a wide variety of things uh so for example i mean i'm gonna ask you to cut this but um <laughs> That's fine. Uh, because because I'm I'm not allowed, to <laughs> and they're gonna they're gonna tell me off for it uh, if I do. But for example, so my my option is with okay. who have done everything from okay. just <laughs> such a random array of like things that are definitely all not in one genre by any means, and it's just like. <laughs> So they're definitely yeah, casting Jack Black for Ascension, right? <laughs> oh, One question. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In every role. It, in uh, your contract. Eddie Murphy coming to America thing with Jack Black and he's going to take every single role <laughs> character. Yeah. <laughs> Too bad we have to cut this, huh? <laughs> we can probably leave in the Jack Black line. It'll just be a bit weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, zero context, just throw it out there anyway. That's just, just throw I mean, a joke. Bearing, uh, bearing in mind, I wrote a lesbian vampire novel. I went and looked up this company, and they made. And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, anyway, that's big. That's big. That's a like, Yeah, well, I'll I'll know more in a couple of weeks because I talked to them the day before your launch party. So, we'll we'll see. Okay. Cool. Exciting. Um. So yeah, um, I was th thinking of other things I was going to say about the, the kind of contractually stuff. Other things are important to know, I suppose, with options are that usually the first option payment 
is on account, which means that it is taken away, it's taken from the purchase price. So when you get the final purchase price, it will be minus the first option payment. But then usually, okay. and if it's not, you should make sure that it is, um, succeeding option payments are not on account. Okay. So if they go to the end of the first option period and they have to pay your next option payment, that will not be taken off the purchase price. That's an additional option payment that they need to pay you. And that's, that's relatively standard, I think. Did anyone ever discuss with you like a TV show versus film and whether that was a possibility or was film was the thing? Yeah. Okay. So one, one we, we had two offers and one was for a TV show and one was for a film. The, the, the two okay. very specific pitches. Oh, fascinating. Um, and yeah, that was something that I thought about. And Is it true they pay you for every episode if it's a, if it's a show? They do, yeah, yeah, <laughs> okay. they do. They do, but that's complicated as well. So if it's film, they'll they'll give you a purchase price and then and then they'll pay you for every episode, but that will also be on account. So let's say, for example, your purchase price is um, a hundred thousand, and they are they're going to pay you ten thousand for every episode, but they're making ten episodes. Well, that's your that's your hundred thousand because yeah. it's all on account. It's taken off the purchase price, okay. right. so it's not actually additional. If they went on to make a second season for some reason and, and made more episodes, then they might have to then pay you more. But usually it's it's just kind of built into the purchase price. And the purchase price you get, because it, it, it's complicated mm -hmm. and it's it's why it's good to have it's kind of more, more money baked in at different points like the studio setup fees, because as everyone will tell you, films and TV adaptations can die at mm, any yep. point. Like any point. Yep. Even when you think like this is it, like we've got a cast, we've got a script, we've got like, yeah, uh, it, people will turn around and be like, nope, it's not happening, it's dead. And that's obviously more often. Yeah, than I that. had a uh, an friend <laughs> whose show was filmed and died before it hit screen because yeah. of COVID. Yeah, uh, that's rough, <laughs> but, but important to know that the purchase price, the full purchase price is paid to the author on the first day of principal filming. So it doesn't actually need to hit screens. The first day that they are on set with a camera, with an actor in front of the camera, that's the day that you get the purchase price. I think it has something to do with insurance. I think technically the film is insured from that day onwards. So if it does collapse at that point, the studio gets their money back if because of COVID or whatever. So it doesn't really matter to them financially. So so that 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 presumably that person would still have got the purchase Hopefully. price for that. For that. <laughs> For that production even if the production didn't get made which sucks in of itself what were your decisions like when you were looking between film and tv if that's okay to ask yeah i mean there was there was obvious narrative decisions about kind of what what i what i thought the medium would work, work best in there were financial decisions as well and part of the reason that we swung to film is that they offered me more money <laughs> which you know <laughs> is a big reason and the 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 the, the, the film production company were significantly more big and well-established, mm -hmm. I think. And, and it was felt that, that, that they probably had more gravitas and likelihood to be able to push this thing through mm -hmm. if they were really behind it. Because actually when it comes to kind of like creative and narrative decisions, I'm very much not a purist. I've had a lot of people ask me, me like, you know, what, what what do you feel about people adapting? And I'm like, they can do whatever they want with it. Like uh, they, uh, it, as far as I'm concerned, like I'm putting my faith in them because I think they're such fundamentally different mediums. Yeah. I think some of the best adaptations I've ever seen are absolutely nothing like the book. And some of the worst adaptations I've ever seen are trying to be too faithful to the book. Blade Runner. Um, yeah, Blade Runner is a perfect mm -hmm. example, right? Annihilation is another wonderful example. It's 
almost nothing like the plot of the book, but it still manages to capture the same vibes. Um, things like that. So, so yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm, I was very like, you know, you, you have a vision, you run with it, you do what you, you do, what you want with it. Um, and it doesn't change so that the book, never... but it does boost your sales. So people will discover your book in other ways. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and is there, is there anything contractual related to that? Or is that just, you know, kind of off the record conversations you're having with those bidders um, in terms of faithfulness to the, to the book? Nothing contractual. I think there was, there was, there was obviously discussions had about like, uh, both teams were like, you know, we really want you on board. This is an interesting thing, actually. Both teams were very much, when they were trying to get the the option, were like, we really want you on board creatively. We want you to be part of the discussions. We really want your vision, all of that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. That's really cool. But obviously nothing was written into the contract. It was kind of a gentleman's agreement, as it were. And that's like, none of that has happened. I will comment <laughs> on that, actually, because the... Um... So if an IP is established, it is a little different. And also the things I've heard from some other agents and people that if the IP is specifically YA or middle grade. So for example, Twilight, the films were very true to the books and they had to do that because that fan base is expecting a true adaptation. And if it isn't a true adaptation, they're going to go tell all their teenage friends, oh, the Twilight films suck and then they won't go see it. So... I think it does depend on the IP, uh, whereas an adult, it's like, I guess no one cares, so we just uh, get whatever Hollywood gives. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> exactly. Adults don't read anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, so, yeah, con I think contractually, as far as my adaptation was concerned, I think the case for it, certainly a lot of adult stuff is they can do pretty much whatever they want to it um yeah and and i if if they want to i mean if they want to turn around to me and say we're not telling you anything shut up go away they are contractually allowed to do that as long as they pay me the money um and they, they've been good and they answer my questions and they talk to me and stuff and i i i'm not precious and i'm not like trying to have more of a creative say but I think if I was someone that really wanted to have a major creative say over it, I think I would be probably quite frustrated by the by mm. the process. Did, did you did anyone ever have a conversation where they talked about like basically what option offers look like in terms of size or do they just range massively the way publishing does? I don't know if that's a fair question to ask. Um, they range hugely. Okay. The way yeah. publishing does it, it's almost exactly the same as a book deal. There is, there is, and there's very little scope of, of information out mm. there about what it is. So, so they can be, they can be tiny. They can be like literally like here's five hundred bucks, uh, like a bit, uh, and and they can be really really small, and that, that's quite common. And they can be like you read about like a million dollar option payments and stuff mm. like that, which are ludicrous, right? And, and and anywhere in between. Okay. And I didn't I didn't really have a sense when I was mm. um when I was going in actually and, and I didn't it's, it's true I didn't really have a conversation with any of my agents about is this high, is this low, like comparatively to other option payments. I did actually find out um later on for various other reasons when we were getting into stuff contractually that what ended up being negotiated for me was the highest option payment that that particular production company had ever paid an author 
Congratulations. Oh, wow. Which, <laughs> yeah, like, that's amazing. I had no metric to kind of, at the time, to compare that against. I was just excited about big numbers, piece of paper. Do you think, like, publishing, the size of option payment has any bearing on um, basically their attitude towards producing it and putting work in? Yeah, I think it definitely okay. does. I think it definitely does because um, cause ultimately that's money that they paid, that they, mm. like in advance, that's money that they paid that they're not getting back, right? And if the film doesn't get made, that's money that they've thrown down the drain. And to a production company, $500 or a, or, or a grand or something like that might not mean very much, and so that's fine. But if they're paying you, you know, five figures, six mm. figures for something, then that's a lot of money that they've invested into something that, that might not get made. Mm. And so I think that, that, that that's definitely true, that there's more investment if they've if they put more money into it in the in the first place. Yeah. Um, and I guess there's, there was one other thing I was going to sort of ask um, before we take up too much of your time. There's a lot of discussion, that, which I always think is bogus, about how authors need platform, need platform, need platform. And I was thinking about this recently um, when I think I was like a, a while back, I reshared one of your tweets. I was thinking, this guy does not have much of a Twitter platform. And actually, most of us don't. Uh, and I just wondered, you know, if anyone ever even mentioned it, because you hear all these horror stories on Twitter, of people saying, oh, an agent and publisher rejected me because of my platform. Uh, and I'm sorry to say, the really cynical part of me doubts that every time it happens. Like, unless they're writing nonfiction, I feel like like none of these, these production companies are Googling him going, oh, my God, he's not got 10,000 followers on Twitter. Let's withdraw our option. <laughs> yeah, I... I think you're completely right. I don't think any anyone in fiction is getting rejected because of the size of yeah. their platform. I think what people could get confused well, for adults, by anyway. is some some people for adult anyway. Yeah. yeah, some people are getting picked up because of yeah. the size of their platform. Yeah, absolutely. So some people, if they've got like you know a million followers on TikTok and they've written a book, that that might move the needle in terms of them getting picked up. But nobody who's written a good book is is going to have someone look at them and go, "Oh, you've only got you haven't got a Twitter account like we can't possibly." Because I, I don't have any kind of platform. I kind of hate using social media. Same. <laughs> um, I've kind of, kind of forced myself to to like Twitter, but all I really do is just tweet marketing stuff about my book and occasionally retweet other people, and that's about it. I had a really, it's a very quick story time. Go for uh, it. But I think it's very relevant. I had a, I had a run in with this a few years previously where I bought the same uh, bogus that was being sold about like, you need a platform, you need a platform, right? And so I was like, okay, I'm gonna make a platform. And I started this blog um, and I was really diligent with it. And it was like writing advice and stuff about writing. And it was like, it was it was really good, right? I was, it was like, people were reading it, people were subscribing. I was having like, it was a point where I was having like thousands of readers, like tens of tens of thousands, like people visiting the site. Exactly. Which was which was amazing, right? And I was like, "This is it. This is I'm building. I'm building. I'm building a platform. It's going to be so great when my book comes out." Because this is when Professor Everywhere was going to come out with my like mm. small press, and I was like, "When my book comes out, I'm just going to share it on on the platform, and um, and all these thousands of people are going to come on, and they're all going to buy it, and I'm going to be you know a bestseller, and blah blah blah." <laughs> and I did one post about the book where I was like, "Oh, by the way, like thanks for hanging around on this blog. Just to let you know, I've got a book coming out next month." Like, if you're interested, here's a link. And the only thing that happened was a bunch of people unsubscribed. That was it. Wow. That was the only thing that took place. It's a bunch of people like, oh, he's trying to sell me something? Not interested anymore. Bye. And I put so much work into it. I was so disillusioned. It didn't move my sales an inch. 
yeah, I was so utterly disillusioned that after that point I was like, I have no time for a platform and I've never really tried to make one since. And clearly in terms of the publishing stuff, it hasn't made a difference. I don't, I don't think it makes a yeah. difference. I think the people who make a difference are outliers and that is, it is a viable path. But for me, the work involved in becoming a social media celebrity is just fucking harder than like writing six books and I'd rather write six books and have the backlog so your mileage may vary if you're really good at TikTok you go for it I fucking hate TikTok I'm never getting back on that site aside to from checking my jujitsu instructors videos when he tells me to anyway I just I thought I'd throw that in there because that's always one it's like I think I felt in a way like you're a really good example of a book that was very buzzy and hypey, but not on Twitter. Like you are not very visible on Twitter, and that that's not like a criticism. It's just no, not. it's just that Twitter is not the real world. Twitter is this tiny pocket of of people who kind of are like living in their own separate cave system from the rest of society. Um, she says on Twitter all the time. <laughs> it doesn't reflect what's going on with the people who have money, with the people who are selling books, not for trade publishing anyway. I don't think. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. So yeah, don't stress about a platform. If you don't have a platform, <laughs> use the use the time to stress about writing a good book. Yes. On that note, if you feel if you uh, feel up to, I guess plugging yourself where we can find you, where we can hear about you, because you at the time of recording, your book is two weeks from release, and we're hoping to release this that week or soon after, if that's okay. <laughs> though, though, to be fair, yeah, we've never no, gotten no. Sa- we don't really get sales from doing the podcast. So I'm not sure any of our authors do, but all for what it's worth. <laughs> It's worth a shot, yeah. yeah. Always worth a shot. It's always worth a shot. Always worth trying to trying to plug. Leonardo DiCaprio might be listening. He might be listening. Okay, so this I'm going to address this. I'm going to address this directly to Leo. If you're out there, Leo, my book's coming out at the end of April, and it's great. It's about a big mountain, and everyone goes crazy and people die. And you're the right and age for it. Say, you are the right age for it, Leo. You are the right age. This could this could make your career. Is what I'm saying because <laughs> I think you need the exposure. Um, so, so keep that in mind, Leo. And if you would like to find me, I am. Where am I? I'm on Twitter nominally, occasionally at binge writing and nicholasbinge.com. I have a website, and that's that's about it as far as platform goes. But there's kind of links to stuff there if anyone wants to check it out. Yo, no worries. Thanks so much, man. That was Scott. Do you have anything else? I think we've overshadowed you this episode. (laughs) No, not at all. I've just been sitting here taking notes. (laughs) I have a full page. I will be taking notes actually towards. Well, I might be borrowing your notes when I go through doing edits. Um, There you go. No, yeah. I mean, this was fantastic, right? Like the percentage of writers who get a book deal is fairly small, and the percentage of people with a book deal who then go on to get a even just an option right is quite small so getting a a little crash course on what that looks like terms to look out for i don't know if it's helpful because who knows if (laughs) i or or many of us will ever be in that situation but it is at the very least quite interesting i think quite a lot of people a surprising number do get options um i feel like i know a lot of people yeah. who just sit on them mm-hmm. and okay they sit on them for years and there's probably not a chance that the, the book's getting made and sometimes that you know people are buying those options to prevent from books rights getting taken but it's free money that you get and i guess the yeah. other side of it is for every person i know that has a, an actual film option there's probably two or three that have been offered a scammy one so i think 
having some awareness of what is normal is really the best defense against getting taken for a ride. And I think as well that in the same way that that even the very, very established publishers do, as as we all know well, if they can try and screw you in some way in your contract, they will, mm. you know? That's not because they're evil. Well, maybe it's because they're evil, yeah. but it's because they're capitalists. And it's because that's how the companies work, right? And so it's important to be aware you know, little things about kind yeah. of options being on account and, and purchase prices and stuff like that and how they all work just to yes. make sure that if you're being offered something, it it it, it rings true. And if yes. it doesn't ring true, maybe you want to ask your agent why. Yeah. Oh, I'll yeah. just throw in one last thing, which I'll probably have to move around to another bit. But base, yeah, just as a, as a cautionary thing for people listening, if someone comes to you and they want to buy your film rights, that's a red flag. And and that's part of why I was putting so much stress on asking Nick to yeah. define options, because wanting to option your film is different from wanting to buy your film rights outright. Um, and most of the people I've met who've been scammed by these kind of predatory companies, it, it's that someone comes in and literally takes their film rights away and they don't ever get them back. And that's not the same yeah. as optioning it. Um, it's really, really rubbish situation. And you should also watch, so definitely that, and if anyone tries to take all your film yes. rights, you should say no to them. And you should also watch specifically, and I think I think this is mm. more common amongst slightly more predatory, smaller presses, yes. um, at times, the big ones, you should watch for publishers that try and take your mm -hmm. film rights too, and you should try and hold on to those because they will they will try and sneak that into the contract that you're signing over all of your film rights to them as well. Mm. And then they'll shop it yeah. and then they'll take a commission on it. And really, you should hold on yeah. to those. There's no benefit because publishers cannot make films. So they're just yeah. going to be an extra middleman taking even more of the money, which best case scenario, you're getting what, 2% of like the whole thing. So it's already a low amount. And yeah, thank you so much again for all of that. Uh, really useful information for hopefully our listeners and definitely for people that we know and hopefully for me i'm not sure i can say that bit but <laughs> thank you again and it's really good to e meet you in person as well yes yeah yeah good to actually put faces to twitter handles yes. um and yeah, yeah thanks so on. much cool. Nick. amazing yeah i'll see you in a couple of weeks Bye. man yeah see you in a couple of weeks Sonia. i'm excited You've been listening to the Publishing Radio Podcast with Sunny Dean and Scott Drakeford. Tune in next time for more in-depth discussion on everything publishing industry. See you later.